All right, so good evening. It's, it's good to be back to a regular class. Last week, thank you for all of you who were able to come to the book reception. It was uh, an exciting event. I'm very happy that, that those books are hereby out. I brought a couple of additional copies. If you were not there last week, and if you are also not a member of the Institute for Jewish Ideas and Ideals, I have a few additional copies of the books we gave out that I wanted to distribute to you members of this group. So afterwards, I have four more copies, and if there's more than four of you, I have a bunch more upstairs in the office. So don't you worry, everybody will get a book. Uh, the Song of Songs, we're up to the Miggy Lotnets. We're really getting to this you know, high season of our of our course, where for the next five weeks, we're going to do one Miggy La a week. So today's turn is Song of Songs, Shirashi Rim. Next week is Blue. And then I have to cheat. I very seldom, you have no idea how rigid I am about this point, I very seldom break the order of learning for the sake of seasons. But it would be truly silly to not do Megillah Esther prior to Purim and to stand on ceremony and do it two weeks later. So that's not going to happen. So we, we are going to do Megillah the Wednesday immediately preceding Purim. And then I'll get back to the regular order. Sometimes you just have to make exceptions. Song of Songs is one of those books that's really hard. Some people have the custom of reading it every single Friday night, but I sincerely wonder if they are paying attention to what it means or studying it, or is it really just motor through in order to get to Kabbalah Shabbat and, and this and that. There was a book that was published in the year 2003 by Rabbi Yuval Sherlow. He's a Rosh Yeshiva at Yeshiva Petach Tikva. Very, very thoughtful man. I've read some of his other stuff. So he wrote a book on Shir Hashirim, Song of Songs. It's 510 pages long in Hebrew. A teacher of mine mentioned it to me, so I bought it right away when I was in Israel. And then it sat on my shelf. And every now and then it would yell at me, saying, read me. You know, Alice in Wonder, that's what my books do to me all the time. And uh, read me, read me. And this one was giving me a hard time because I didn't read it as soon as I got it. Uh, so I looked back at it and I said, you know, no offense, but it, you're 510 pages long. And unless I'm going to teach the Song of Songs, I have so many other things I need to read for the books that I do teach. And I just don't teach the Song of Songs on average. I've never taught it formally as a text course either. I've taught Mickey Lotes. But you focus on Ruth and Kohelet and Esther and get a smattering of the other two, as opposed to going through verse by verse. So, But then I had Rabbi Sherlow's book on my shelf. For five years, this book was yelling at me to read it already. The year 2008 was the first time in a while in that cycle that I did not go to Israel. I said, you know, this is the moment. Go crazy. Read this book. So I sat there and read the book, and it's a very good book. It's, uh, I was very happy that he yelled at me enough, or else it would have just, you know, ended up behind stuff, and that would have been that would have been the end. Uh, Rabbi Sherlow, what's interesting about this 510-page commentary, which I didn't figure out until I opened it, is that the commentary begins on page 361. That was just like a cool little feature of the book. So what's going on for the other 360 pages prior? Uh, he's explaining the different trends of thought for the Song of Songs. He's explaining approaches to it, explaining the standard question that we've been asking for thousands of years, like, do you take it literally, or is there an allegory here? What is its religious significance in the overall scheme of things? If you've never read it, should. It's beautiful love poetry. It's a very intimate poem where the man and the woman are madly in love with one another, share intimate thoughts all the time. They don't seem to consummate the relationship in the book, although they certainly are thinking about it a lot. And it's a very physical book, to be honest, right? It's about the physical beauty of the characters much more than the emotional well-being and state and mutual growth as a couple. It's not that kind of book. It's really much more about the physical interaction that they're just describing each other's beauty. So... This led to a flurry of commentary. I think I read in one of the many articles I've barreled through over the years on Song of Songs that in traditional rabbinic commentary, the only books that are written about more than the Song of Songs are the five books of the Torah. 
There are more commentaries, rabbinic commentaries, on the Torah than any other book. But second place in the history of interpretation, more than the book of Esther, I couldn't believe it, because Esther gets a lot of attention. Song of Songs gets more, because it gets them all. The philosophers think it's some kind of philosophical treatise. The mystics think it's a mystical treatise. Everybody, the poetic literary people, well, there's lots of poetic and literary stuff going on. Everybody has something to say, and everybody apparently has said so. Hundreds of commentaries have been written on the Song of Songs. So Rabbi Sherlow, here's here's the one-minute version of those 360 pages, is alert to the fact that there is a literal reading, which is the love song between the man and the woman, from the Department of Very Cool Ancient Near Eastern and Women Statistics, by the way. The woman speaks a lot more than the man in the book. There is nothing in Ancient Near Eastern literature remotely resembling this book. Usually it's the man, you know, singing away the praises of his girl or his woman and whatever. Here, the fact that there's this mutual dialogue going on is, is, is just unheard of. Or the fact that the woman longs for the man. You don't have anything until like the 17th century CE that remotely comes close to this sort of thing. So the scholars point out that the Song of Songs is starkly unusual. Love poetry goes way back. As long as people have loved each other and figured out how to make poems, there's been love poetry. We didn't make up love poetry. But the nature of this particular poem is simply very, very, very different. And there are two different allegories that the rabbis favored the most. The standard one, if you ask any any you know, high school kid who learns you know, the one-sentence version of what the Song of Songs is about, it's an allegory between God and Israel. That the man is the God and the woman is Israel and that they're sharing love to one another. And that's the standard way of dealing with it. The Targum deals with it that way. Rashi, Ibn Ezra, Rashbam. You, know, you go down the very, very star-studded lineup of commentators who assume that the primary meaning of the text is an allegory and specifically of a love saga between God and Israel. Then you have the philosophers, leave it to the philosophers to come up with a different track, Rambam, Ralbag, and others, Abarbanel. They say that the allegory is between God and any righteous individual. It's not a national saga, it's the personal saga. That we're dealing with the longing of a religious person for God and God loving that person as well. So this is the standard thing. And, and what Rabbi Sherlow does, and it's just like a really cool move that he, he pulls here, he says you have to interpret the song first literally. You need to understand what the words are or else you get nowhere. And then you can start talking about allegory. And then you can start talking about how it all comes together for religious meaning. And that's what his book does in the first 420 pages. Because there's 360 pages of introduction, 60 pages of commentary. And then the last 90 or so pages are a quick spiritual history of Jewish people. It's really cool. That's my favorite part of the book. Where he just talks about different trends of spirituality in the biblical period, rabbinic period, what happened with the medieval philosophers, how they changed the game radically. Then where the mystics come into play, then zing ahead to the modern era, and just how different our religious lives are and what our challenges and what our life looks like than what it looked like in the 15th century, 13th century, 9th century, whatever. And we need a language in our age to address the new religious reality. doesn't mean you change the religion, but you need to be able to speak the right language to people to keep them engaged. We don't, our children are not like 500 years ago children. The question is, what do we do? So Rabbi Sherlock thinks that the best language in the entire Bible for speaking to our generation is the Song of Songs. He thinks it's tops. And that's why he spent 510 pages writing that book. I actually bumped into him on the street soon after I read the book. I said, Rabbi Sherlock. 
thank you. I finally read your book. It was, it was yelling at me for five years to read it. I read it. It's awesome. I was giving, I immediately gave like a seven part series in a shul just for the sake of forcing myself to really read it carefully. And, and once that was done, then, uh, then it was okay. So, right, so he smiles and says, yeah, it's way too long. <laughs> it, 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 was, it was worthy. He, 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 it's not, it's not, there are no wasted words there. So, Rabbi Shula says, let's start with the literal story. And that's what a lot of tonight is going to be, actually, just reading some of the key texts and how he sees a story of a love song between a man and a woman. The catch is that it's not just any old man and a woman who met at a Starbucks. As I was walking over here, I saw a man hitting on a woman, and the woman seemed so sort of interested. You know, that's the usual state of affairs. And she looks up from a laptop, vaguely interested in that. And, you know, that, this, the story, you know, a dime a dozen type of stuff that you see just walking down the street. Uh, here we're dealing with a particular love story between a woman who is a farmer, her family has vineyards, and the man is a king. He's not only a city person, but he actually is a king. And they're dating. They're, they're, they're expressing love to each other pre-marriage at the beginning. And one of the, I mean, look, you don't need any of this Venus-Mars stuff about men and women. The fact is that a king's life is radically different from a farmer's life. I don't know either life, but I'm sure that they're radically different from each other, and I'm sure they're radically different from mine. And what happens here is they don't even know how to speak each other's language. They don't understand each other's realities. And part of the Rabbi Shirla's analysis of the Song of Songs is that people need to understand each other for who they are. Right? It's very easy to dump your own terms and emotional state on the other person. But a real loving relationship, of course, is when you understand the other person to the degree that you can on their own terms. He says that's how the Song of Songs starts. Choose source number one. By the way, quick hazard, which I will try to overcome for us. You have the Hebrew also. In Hebrew, there's a masculine and a feminine. So when you read the verses in Hebrew, you immediately know who is speaking. You know if the man is speaking toward the woman or the woman is speaking toward the man because they use masculine and feminine words or verbs or suffixes, whatever they need to do. So you can immediately know who is speaking at least 99% of the time. In English, when somebody says, you this... Well, it's the same you, right? We don't have a different word, male or female you. So the English translation sometimes obscures whether it's a male or a female speaking or about the other one, but we'll be able to figure it all out because we have the Hebrew in front of us. So the woman at the beginning of the book tells her beloved, uh, not husband, man, don't stare at me because I am swarthy, because the sun has gazed upon me. You know, here you have the king with his whole entourage coming out to go on a date with farm girl. And the woman is like, oh, I'm sunburned. You know, I used the wrong, whatever the stuff is called, SPF. And, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm unable to, you know, I've been out in the vineyards all day. My mother's sons quarreled with me. They made me guard the vineyards. My own vineyard I did not guard. Look, she starts complaining about her woes at the, in the, on the farm, that her brothers, you know, bullied her. It's a, she had to watch their vineyard. Now she couldn't watch hers. That's what's on her mind. And then the king, how does he speak about his beloved? I have likened you, my darling, to a mare in Pharaoh's chariots. <laughs> So he's speaking his language, right? I mean, it's a beautiful contrast. You really get a sense of, you know, the farm girl is speaking in her language. You know, oh my goodness, I feel so unattractive. I'm sunburned from the farm work. And he's thinking, wow, you're as beautiful as Pharaoh's chariots. He doesn't know about Pharaoh's chariots. You know, the king does, the army does, the city people do, the stable cities do. A regular farmer never sees Pharaoh's chariots. And so this is a great example that Rabbi Sherlow invokes 
where they're showering each other with love. They're madly in love with each other long before the curtains rise in chapter one, and that, that love never goes away. But they don't know how to speak each other's language yet. Right now, they're completely speaking their own. One of the things that that's it's 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 a it's a wonderful thing. One of the, this this is why you need people who just specialize in animals and plants. Okay, bless these people. I do every single day because I would never take the time. But you need somebody who does take the time. It's just like archaeologists. It's just like the grammarians. Like there's so many subspecialties. You need all of them. They're all really 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 important. But you need people who devote their lives to it. So there was one professor in Israel. He taught at Bar Ilan University. Died about a decade ago. His name was Professor Yehuda Felix. And he was the world's expert in biblical plants and animals. That was his thing. He knew anything there was to know about every plant and every animal, their mating habits, their eating habits, their migration patterns, and often would show how, if you know these things, it actually comes in handy for interpreting Tanakh, because ancient people who live with these animals or or eat these plants, they know exactly what they're talking about when they use imagery. The Song of Songs likes to... You see a lot of comparison to deer or gazelles. Now, from my point of view, you don't need to be that good of a poet. Yeah, deer are beautiful, graceful animals, and wow, if they're likening each other to deer, that's fine. So Professor Felix says, yeah, of course, they are graceful and beautiful and quick and do all these things, but he says, but you're missing the point. The mating habits of deer is that they actually play this whole chasing game with each other. And they actually do things that are that by deer standards are usually very reckless. They put themselves in danger. They go places they never, ever would go, not during mating season. And they're constantly chasing each other. That's simply part of the mating ritual. So Rabbi, Professor Felix argues that that's the point of our book, that what they're doing is they're constantly chasing each other like deer. And they do things that are dangerous, to any normal human being some of the time. They do things that normally people would not do, but that's why the imagery is used. And it's a great, you know, from the world of zoology, it's it's really very helpful to understand that detail because so much of the book is about that, where the man and the woman take turns chasing each other. So Rabbi Sherlow argues in source number two, the woman says, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. Basically, he takes that to mean, pick me, I'm ready to be picked. I'm this beautiful, beautiful flower. And the man retorts, like a lily among thorns, so is my darling among the maidens. So most commentators understand it probably the way that you understood it, which is, he's praising her. All the other women, they're thorns, but my woman is a rose. But Rabbi Sherla takes this to mean, uh, yeah, you are a rose, but you're surrounded by thorns. There's a barrier here. So I'm not going to just reach in and pick you, because then I'll get prickled, and that's never any fun. So... The way that Rabbi Sholo understands it, at this moment in the saga, the woman is ready to be with the man, but the man is like, you know, not so fast. I see a lot of thorns in the way. I'm going to hold off just a little bit. So then, after that saga, we move into source number three. The woman speaks and says, My beloved spoke thus to me. And now the man gets all romantic. Arise, my darling, my fair one, come away. For now the winter is past. The rains are over and gone. The blossoms have appeared in the land. The, times of, the time of pruning has come. The song of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The green figs form on the fig tree. In other words, it's springtime, right? Uh, the vines and blossom give off fragrance. Arise, my darling, my fair one, come away. Sounds like the man is ready now, right? Before he was worrying about the thorns. Now he's saying, come. Oh, my dove in the cranny of the rocks hidden by the cliff. Let me see your face. Let me hear your voice. For your voice is sweet and your face is comely. In other words, he's hiding. 
He's like, where are you? I don't even hear your voice. Let me see you. Where are you? And finally she replies, you know, sorry, I'm busy. Catch us the foxes, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards, for our vineyard is in blossom. Can't come right now. There are foxes in the vineyard. i got to take care of that. So that's another, this time the man is ready to progress along in the relationship, but the woman is holding back. She says, I'm, I'm busy right now. Of course, no sooner does this passage go by that it flips around again. She's done with the foxes. So she moves on over in source number four. Sorry that the last line got caught on like that. Upon my couch at night, I sought the one I love. So now she, she's going back after him. I sought, but found him not. Now he's gone. I must rise and roam the town through the streets and through the squares. I must seek the one that I love. I saw it, but found him not. So it's just this back and forth thing. The whole saga is that. First the man, the woman said she was ready. He's like, thorns. Then finally he comes and says, springtime, what a great opportunity. And she says, sorry, foxes. Now she's going after him. She can't even find him. I met the watchman who patrolled the town. Have you seen the one I love? Scarcely had I passed them when I found the one I love. I held him fast. I would not let him go until I brought him to my mother's house, to the chamber of who conceived me. I adjure you, O maidens of Jerusalem, by gazelles or by the hinds of the field. Do not wake or rouse love till it please. Oh, they found each other. So what's going to happen next? Here's a really big surprise. And this is why all fairy tales, it's really rough reading these things to my kids. Because it drove me crazy long before I was blessed with children. But it's... Just about every fairy tale you can think of, and the movies too. You have the whole saga, and then in the last 20 seconds of the movie is when they kiss and get married. Right? And then they they presumably live happily ever after. That's the premise of just about any fairy tale I can get my hands on, right? You have all the drama, all the saga, whatever struggles there are, then done. And come on, the beast turns into a guy, all of those things. And then they're married the last 20 seconds of the thing. You hear the theme song in the background and bam, you go right to the credits. Every single one, right? Now, real life, anybody who's married knows, uh, marriage is not, oh, happily ever after the end. It's a wonderful new chapter in a, in a, in a, in a developing relationship. I still remember, the one, I like when people give me blessings. I really do. There's one blessing that I got hundreds of times when I got married that I politely said, no, I decline your blessing. I'll even tell you what it is. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a very good uh, <laughs> setup. And I, I was polite about it. I understood that they meant very well, but it was an awful blessing. And I said, no, thank you. And I explained why, no, thank you also. Uh, a lot of people said, you know, you should always be this happy on our, on our wedding night. Thank God we were very happy that night. Don't yeah. uh, It was an incredibly happy moment. But I said, God, God forbid, I intend to be way happier. Why in the world do I want to, why should this be the roof and everything else is down? I, that, that's, that's, a, that's an unfathomable, that's an unfathomable position on marriage, but it also reflects the fairy tale perspective of what a marriage is. That once you get there, okay, you won, and now happily ever after at the end. So you should always have that happily ever after, but that's a mistake. Marriage requires ongoing work to, and development, and it gets better and better and better, but it takes, but it's work. Song of Songs has the marriage in chapter three. It doesn't have it. The whole thing is eight chapters long. It doesn't have the marriage at the end and happily ever after the end. Marriage is here. Source five. Who is she that comes up from the desert like columns of smoke and clouds of myrrh and frankincense of all the powders of the merchant? There is Solomon's couch encircled by 60 warriors of the warriors of Israel, all of them trained in warfare, skilled in battle. 
each with sword on thigh because of terror by night. King Solomon made him a palanquin of wood from Lebanon. He made its posts of silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple wool. Within it was decked with love by the maidens of Jerusalem. O maidens of Zion, go forth and gaze upon King Solomon wearing the crown that his mother gave him on his wedding day, on his day of bliss. So Rabbi Sherlo interprets this passage as, here's the wedding feast. You know, the bride comes in, and this is not just any old wedding. No siree, this is a royal wedding. King is surrounded by his bodyguards, his crack commandos, right? There are these wonderful palanquins, these wonderful seated things that, you know, nobility gets carried around on. Surrounded by men, women, the whole nobility is there. Everybody's there. It's a royal wedding. Now, on the one hand, talk about dream come true. On the other hand... You know, think about the farm girl's perspective for just a moment. When they're dating in the fields, she's dating a man. He might technically be a king, but she doesn't see the whole royal getup or entourage or bodyguards or chariots of Pharaoh. She just sees her beloved. And that's how they speak to each other. Suddenly, the wedding day shows up and she they get married in Jerusalem at the palace. And all of a sudden, she's like, whoa, what am I signing up for here? Who are all these people? What kind of lifestyle am I, am I getting into? I, was just, I just enjoyed being with this man as a person. But what's life going to be like in the palace, which obviously is not something she could ever anticipate until she's there. And what happens next is something really wacky, which is chapter 4, which is not in the source sheets. You can read all this. That's what survey courses do, right? Chapter 4, the husband, king over here, bombards her with such lavish praises about how perfect she is and wonderful and beautiful and all. he's really, really, really wonderful. And so here they are, they're married, he's showering her with praise. It looks like we do have that happily ever after the end. And then comes chapter five. Chapter five we have over here in source number six. I was asleep. This is the woman talking now. But my heart was wakeful. Hark, my beloved knocks. Let me in, my own, my darling, my faultless dove, for my head is drenched with dew, my locks with the damp of night. It turns out, if you read the whole section, the woman went home to mom after the wedding. She's up with her mother's house. And so her husband is like, uh, this is not what I had in mind for a honeymoon, right? Like, for one thing, I'd like to be with you. And so he goes, tracks her down to the mother's house, but she's locked the door. So the poor guy. Here he is, bang, 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 bang. You know, open up, I'm soaked. <laughs> I'm drenched with dew, my locks with the damp of night. It's it's crummy out here, just let me in the door. But the woman's, you know, lying in bed in this dreamlike state. I had taken off my robe. Was I to don it again? Oh, come on, I'm already in bed, right? I don't want to have to get dressed again. I had bathed my feet. Was I to soil them again? My beloved took his hand off the latch. My heart was stirred for him. So, you know, here, poor guy, he's bang, 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 shaking the doorknob, doing whatever he can. She's just in this dreamy state, thinking about him and loving him. But she's in her mother's house, won't let him in. Then finally she hears his hand coming off the latch, meaning he's giving up. And she's so excited. She loves him. You know, there's no breach in the love here. I rose to let in my beloved. My hands dripped myrrh. You know, she obviously made herself up. You know, she's dreaming about him. She's with her all her perfumes, all her oils. She's longing for him. But she didn't let him in until he got away. Upon the handles of the bolt, I opened the door for my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. I was faint because of what he said. I saw it, but found him not. I called, but he did not answer. She blew it. Now here he is knocking on the door. She's just dreaming about him, thinking nice thoughts. But in the meantime, 
she took way too long to get out of bed, and by the time she did get out of bed, he was gone. And so now she's got to get dressed and go out onto the streets again and start looking for him again. This keeps on happening. It's this ongoing love saga where they love each other. But something's missing. Finally, the man figures out the problem in source number seven. And he very lovingly tells her, there are 60 queens and 80 concubines. Look, I understand your problem. When we were dating, it was just one and one. I was just a man. I wasn't the king. You saw me for who I was as a person. Very nice. But the reality is I'm also a king. And yes, there's a harem. Yes, there are royal guards. Yes, there's all kinds of stuff going on in the palace. There are dignitaries galore. It's a different life from what you remember shooing away foxes from a vineyard. But then he says, only one is my dove. He says, yeah, there's a lot of women around here, but I actually only love you. My love toward you is unique. Within a king's within a king's way of thinking about these things. The only one of her mother, the delight of her who bore her. Maidens see and acclaim her, queens and concubines and praise her. What he's trying to say is, don't worry, that special thing that we had going on in the vineyards, it really was special to me too. Don't think that I had hundreds of relationships like this one. Yes, kings have all kinds of, they make alliances. They marry princesses of other countries. They marry the nobility's daughters. That's what kings do. And King Solomon, as you know from the King Solomon saga, really took that to an extreme. He married a thousand women. And he had all kinds of alliances. So that's over the top in terms of what Israelite kings are allowed to marry. But all the same, that was his life. What what, What the king in the song is saying is, don't worry, you, my beloved, are the one. All the other ones, yes, they're here. They're here to stay. It's part of the royal life. But the love is genuine toward you. And so her response is very favorable. She says in source number eight, Come, my beloved, let us go into the open. Let us lodge among the henna shrubs. In other words, great, let's go back to the fields the way I like it. And she's still, she's very dreamlike about the whole thing. She liked what the relationship was, and it's way nicer in the henna shrubs than it is in a palace as far as she is concerned. That's when she could focus on this love. Let us go early to the vineyards. Let us see if the vine has flowered, if its blossoms have opened, if the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give my love to you. The mandrakes yield their fragrance, and at our doors are all choice fruits, both freshly picked and long stored. I have kept my beloved for you. She wants to have a good old field date. She's not interested in palace life. The palace life is very intimidating to her. That's why she went back to mom. It was... Marriage, but it wasn't marriage happily ever after. They still need to get to know each other in the marriage. And that's what happens over here. So the the husband figures it out and says that she's truly very special. She says, great, I feel special now, and let's have that special intimate type of relationship that we used to have back in the day. The last two verses of the book are in source number nine. Oh, you linger in the garden. A lover is listening. Let me hear your voice. Hurry, my beloved, swift as a gazelle or a young stag to the hills of spices. It doesn't end with any happily ever after the end. They're still pursuing each other at the very, very end. That's what makes it good love. Right? Instead of just this nice little pat, happily ever after the end, and then fast forward 50 years, the whole point of this loving relationship is that they're madly in love, they're chasing each other the whole way, and you can imagine they're going to keep on doing that long after this book is over. The book is left open in that sense, and that's a very favorable feature of what this book is all about. So that's the literal reading of the book, in a nutshell, according to Rabbi Sherlow. So what happens when you plug in the God-Israel 
allegory here. So the issue here is the elusive thing that you and I have spoken about quite a bunch of times throughout the survey, and it may even come up again, who knows, but it certainly has come up quite a bunch. Uh, how do you get redemption anyway? What does it take to bring Mashiach? To have the whole world perfect at the same time? It should be easy. You just get all people to be good at the same time, but as we all know from world events, it doesn't quite always work that way, and that's why we're unredeemed. So Rabbi Sherlow imagines that that's the purpose of how this book is describing it. That in other words, Israel's had plenty of chances in the past to really get its relationship with God right. Still hasn't done it. And the opportunity is here now. In other words, the point of the end of the book is that it's an open-ended love saga. But if you want that happily ever after, then you need to do something different. Right? Now, we have to learn from the wisdom of the previous eight chapters, or, or really the last several thousand years, that's what he's trying to say, to attain redemption. Part of what he's saying here, let me just put in a little Perush Rashi on him. He's speaking with a moderate voice of religi- religious Zionism here. There's a radical voice of religious Zionism also. He doesn't care for that and doesn't subscribe to it, rightly so. Uh, Zionism is a good thing. I'm quite pro it myself. And the idea of seeing the state of Israel as a miracle, I don't see any other way. Of course it's a miracle. It's an unbelievable gift of God that the Jewish people have their homeland back after 2,000 years. The question is, what is its cosmic significance? And that's what religious Zionism debates. A radical take on this is basically, this is a prelude to the Messianic era, and Mashiach is going to happen now. It hasn't come yet, they would grant that point in a heartbeat, but it's going to come now, and we must do what we can to drive Mashiach home. A more moderate view is, the potential for Mashiach is here, but we have a lot of work to do. Right? The world is hardly about ready to be messianically redeemed. We have a lot, we have a lot of responsibility. So Rabbi Sherlow is taking that tack. He's taking the latter tack, which is a more moderate form of religious Zionism. Namely, the state of Israel is a miracle, but we have, a, we have to get our own house in order to think about messianic redemption. And until we do that, things aren't just going to happen in some spectacular way. So he plugs that into the Song of Songs on this national level. That's how he takes the God-Israel metaphor into the, at the time, it was already the 21st century. Because that's his, that's his slant on that. Then you have, let's go back to Rambam. Rambam insisted that the Song of Songs is a love allegory between God and the religious person. It's not about the nation. So Rabbi Sholah says you could read it that way too, but then <coughs> there's a difference. When it comes to Jewish history, that's a chronological timeline. In other words, we were in Egypt a long time ago, we got out, all these things happened, and now we're down to our present moment. That's a national saga. When it comes to the individual, not any two people, let alone all people, grow or develop in the same religious way. We all have stages, but we don't necessarily have the same stages. It's not like, okay, stage three religiosity coming up right now, I can predict it. No, people have different sagas, and they have different struggles, and they have different ways of developing themselves. So this goes back to the root of, you know, what does Song of Songs mean? What does Shirashirim mean? There's an ancient debate over this point. Shirashirim could mean the best of King Solomon's songs, meaning this is one coherent flow, and it's the greatest of all of his songs. Shirashirim, like Melech Malcheham Lachim, the king of kings. Here's the supreme king of all the other kings. Or Kodesh Kodashim, the holiest of the holies. Okay. But Shirashirim, Song of Songs, also could mean one song that is comprised of 
many smaller songs. And several commentators took it to mean that also, that there are fragments, and that these fragments were then sewn together into one book that we have over here. It's an ancient debate. So Rabbi Sherla, of course, harnesses both of them. He says when you're dealing with the literal story, there's one story, I just told it to you a few minutes ago. It's one saga between this one man and one woman. <coughs> Likewise, the God-Israel saga, it's one saga that we're all part of it. But when it comes to individual growth, the, the relationship between God and the individual, well then, it's the Song of Songs fragments. You can't interpret it as one linear path that everybody goes through, because of course that is not true. So that's how Rabbi Sherlo understands Rambam in this saga. So then he becomes choppy because he's dealing with the various fragments of challenges that we have over here. The common denominator, regardless of what path you personally go on religiously, is that there's an infinite gap between God and a person, any person. God is infinite, we're not. It's hard to relate to God. It doesn't matter what your religious development and direction and so Rabbi Shula says that's what this book is about, right? That the man and woman are trying to understand each other's language, and it's tough. They don't always understand each other's language, which is why there's this ongoing back and forth. Then he goes into some specific details of contemporary spiritual needs, and I find this the most valuable part of the book. He says, first of all, you can see this with anybody, anytime, the need for some kind of spiritual connection with God is innate. People all have it. The question is what you do with that drive. One approach, which is very popular today and has been popular for some time, is the whole individualistic approach. Let's approach God on our terms. Let's cast God in our image, or whatever you call God. It doesn't have to be God. Whatever it is, we cast God in our image and we shape religious experience based on our personal language. That's a very tempting and common thing to do. So Rabbi Sherla says that is the root of what the golden calf was. The golden calf was an effort to serve God. But the people did it on their terms rather than on God's terms. God has a thing about no statues, please. Right? This is a prohibited mode of worship. And the people knew that already. It's not just that they should have guessed properly. They knew that this was wrong. But for them, this was the way of reaching God. So Rabbi Sherlo says it's religious. It's very well motivated. But it's wrong. It's using the wrong language to speak to God. God's language for us to connect to God, of course, is through the Torah. So that's what the Song of Songs is trying to argue from that point of view within Rabbi Sherlo, that the man and the woman, as long as they're talking their own language and not understanding the other, the love can't move forward. It's only when the husband starts talking the wife's language and the wife starts speaking the husband's language that they can start moving closer together. Another aspect of this, of this song that Rabbi Sherlo plays out is what you expect when you pray. A lot of people honestly expect, when you pray, that God is basically a vending machine. A very well-stocked vending machine, right? You pray, push the right button, voila, you get whatever you want. And you could be fooled, by the way, from a religious point of view, reading Tanakh. You could read the Bible. And a lot of the times when people pray, even for pretty far-flung things, they get it. So that might yield the impression, oh, I could just do the same thing, and I'll get whatever whatever, whatever I ask for, and it, of course, it doesn't always work out that way. I have to remind people that when Moshe Rabbeinu, the chief prayer ever and the chief prophet ever, asks God, God, can I please go into the land of Israel? God says, A, no, and B, stop it. Never ask this again. That story, it's heartbreaking. 
heartbreaking, right? But it really drives home the point that if Moshe can't even get everything that he wants, that means that prayer is not a vending machine situation. Right, it's a very important, that's a very important passage for just realizing that, yes, there are many times that God does answer prayers, but not all of them. And even Moshe Rabbeinu did not get everything that he wanted, and obviously that means, well, can't count on it. So Rabbi Shola says that the Song of Songs is very good about setting out a situation where the woman goes after the man even when the man is nowhere. Can't be found. So he says that's a good image of what prayer should be. You pray to God even when God seems absent or isn't responsive to what you're hoping for. Mm. And so he says that that's another element that people struggle with all the time. Yeah. Did you have your hand up? Yeah. Yes, I did. About Moses not going into the uh, the geographic piece of land, God might have something better in store for him, and he might be, and that is to dematerialize into a spiritual sign, you know, a higher place than this land would offer him. So don't ask me again. I don't want to compromise what I have to do. Very good. That's a nice slant on the whole thing. But but all the same, it still doesn't detract from the point, which is that Moshe prayed and God said no. Right? And God's allowed to... No, I have something better for you. <laughs> I'm being me. Moshe didn't think it was better. Moshe was heartbroken, as are we. I, I, I get very teary every single time. It's like my daughters are now... That's one of the passages where they are most frustrated with God of all the passages in Tanakh that we've gone through. Because it's heartbreaking. We love Moshe. He, whatever he did, it doesn't seem like it's bad enough to warrant this. And then all of a sudden, God is saying, no. Yeah, Elias? At some point in time, Rabbi decided what was going to make up the Tanakh. What the book of Judith and the wisdom of Ben didn't make it. One wonders, why, why did they think that Shira Shira, of all the things that were written during that period, was so important that they had a pull it in, whereas other things that were written during this period, which are easy to understand and grasp, didn't make it. You're raising a great point. That's like the ultimate question. So there are different ways of thinking about it, depending on how they understood the book. First of all, on some level, don't don't lose this point in the shuffle, because I might otherwise. I'm glad you're asking the question just for this alone. Love in our tradition is sacred. Even if it's just the story of a human love saga... We sometimes forget that that's, very, that's a very sacred thing. And so just the celebration of human love, I think, is already a worthy thing. Certainly, enough of the sages thought that this was a symbol of something more than that also. Right? Rabbi Akiva got very, very miffed, uh, you know, really to put him off. You know, like, sometimes you, you know how at weddings, very often Jewish weddings, the band actually is the one controlling the whole show? It's, it's, it's amazing. So the poor hapless groom, if he's not willing to stick up for himself in this situation, is often put under a circumstance where the band just starts playing a song and now the groom has to sing it. Poor guy. So I always feel I always feel for the groom in that situation, but you know they always come through whether they have a good voice or not and they do what they need to do. On the good old days, they would do the exact same thing and the band would put the groom on the spot, but instead of doing the Eshet Chayil, uh, they would sing passages from the Song of Songs. They would have the groom sing physical descriptions of his bride. And so Rabbi Akiva said, anybody who does that loses his share in the world to come. He had no patience whatsoever. He said, go to Eshet Chayel, right? If, you're gonna, if the band is going to make the groom sing something. They just, he thought it was a, gr- a gross abuse of the song, that it wasn't meant to be vulgar. It wasn't meant to be this overly physical, you know, inappropriate thing. It's meant to be sacred. 
And Rabbi Akiva said, the, you know, the, there's no greater day than the day that God gave Song of Songs to the people of Israel. Rabbi Akiva, of all people, loved this song. And he said, all the other books in the Bible are holy, but this one is holy of holies. And he meant all that stuff. It's a nice metaphor. So one thing that I'll say, and this all brings home why Elias' question is so, it's, not, it's such an important observation. Because this book is way different from all the other ones in the Bible, right? Uh, Rabbi Akiva is famous for several things, including, drumroll, he was the one who insisted that love your neighbor as yourself is the cardinal principle of the Torah. If you have to boil it down to that one axiom that everything sits on, he is the one who says it has to do with human love. He's also famed for an unbelievably romantic, albeit strange marriage with his wife. In other words, I, I can't imagine the possibility of being 12 years apart, even to learn in a very good yeshiva, right? But all the same, he loved his wife, and his wife loved him. And that there are many passages in the Talmud and other midrashic collections that highlight the loving relationship there and the true respect that they had for one another. So Rabbi Akiva in particular is known as the great romantic rabbi. And a third thing, which is not unrelated, is that he and three colleagues, this will get you to your as-a-driven as leaf also, by the way, he had three colleagues, the, you know, the four great sages of that generation, entered Pardes, which is understood to, well, Pardes is paradise, meaning they entered, they went into some other, it's the same word, went into an otherworldly existence. And most people, when they go to otherworldly existences, I, I spent two years living in the old city, I hung out with a lot of these other world, other, you know, <laughs> they were just sitting on the street corners, wearing whatever, eating whatever, and just telling me why they're either God, Jesus, or some other thing, messianic figure. Those are the usual, so I got to hang out with these people for two years running in the, in the old city of Jerusalem. It was fascinating. And I did other things too while I was there, but that was a, a permanent part of, of the experience over there. So the story goes that there were four people. One, Rabbi Shimon ben Zoma, went nuts. He just went insane. He went into this otherworldly existence. He entered God's realm in some study or mystical whatever. And he went, he went crazy. He stopped functioning as a great sage. The second one, Shimon ben Azai, was so overwhelmed by the intensity that he died. A third one, Elisha ben Avuya, became a heretic. He simply lost all faith. And the fourth one was Rabbi Akiva, who came out all the better for it. So what's the secret? How to add it, you know, besides that obviously he was a greater sage, part of it seems to be exactly this, that he was so in tune with this divine love that he was able to encounter it and then be enhanced, which is the goal. He was moving at his level, whereas the other three were just overwhelmed in one form or another and just lost it. So these Rabbi Akiva things all tie down to Elias' question of what the sages saw in the Song of Songs that's so powerful. This represents in some level human love itself has that power but then if you take it as the god human love as a metaphor all the more so this plays a role one thing that's important to note if you ask most people on the street what biblical books don't have god's name so esther Esther is usually the winner, and by the way, you are right, so you should feel very good about that answer. Come back in two weeks, we'll talk about why in Esther. But the Song of Songs also doesn't have God's name. It's the, it's the other one besides, the other only one, that doesn't, ha- that doesn't have God's name. In Esther, I'll tell you at least one side of the coin from now, is that God's presence is quite hidden in the book of Esther. 
Right? The people play all the role, and God is behind the scenes in a very big way. Here, the Beni Shchai, actually was asked this question in a Sheilod and Teshuvot session, this Rav Yosef Chaim of Baghdad, known by his popular halachic book, Beni Shchai, lived in the 19th century. He says that if you would say God's name one time in this book, that kills the metaphor. You don't want, if, if, if this is a metaphor, if the man and woman are a metaphor for God in Israel or God in whoever, well, if you say God, that kills it. You can't have God's name in the book. You have to keep it as the metaphor. <coughs> And that way you can understand it. It's a very clever answer. I really like that. So, what? What? Why did he say if God's name were mentioned that it would kill it? Because it would kill the metaphor. Because now God's name, when God's name appears, that obviously is literal. And that, and the, but the book is a metaphor. All right. So that's, that's the issue, yeah. But also there's not one response. It's Correct. It's with spirit. They Correct. Even images. Oh, much. <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of interpretation. You are you are so right. Yeah, that's one spin-off. Yeah. There's many, uh, literally many hundreds. But I'm focused. I'm I'm trying to keep my eye on the ball and not say which of those spins is correct or more likely. Yeah. It's immaterial. I'm interested. In, I, what I like about what Rabbi Sherlow did that's why it's such a good book is that he boils down. Okay, here's the text, and here's how you could spin it that way, and here's how you could spin it that way, and why each thing contributes something to our religious growth. He said that one of the key messages of the book is that real life marriage is not a fairy tale situation, right? It's that real life marriage, you get married in chapter three, not at the very, very end of the book. And then it's something that continues to develop and that needs to be worked on. Same thing is true with religious development. He's dealing with, you know, in Yeshiva and Petach Tikva, he deals with a lot of, you know, 20 year old types who can get all fired up. It's actually, a, it's fun teaching at YU, getting like a bunch of these guys who are very, very fired up, at least at the beginning. And then the goal is to try to steer that fire into something that's more adult, or at least that's what I'm trying to do. I don't, I can't speak for anybody else. Where faith at some point stops being that pure, pristine faith in a bubble that you have, that you should have when you're 18 years old, and starts being, okay, how do you transmit that faith to the adult world, to a real life situation? When you leave the walls of the yeshiva and become a real person, with a family and a job and all these things. To me, that's one of the most important lessons that you should vote often don't focus on at all. They try to keep you inside. But then if you go outside, what do you do? And so a lot of people lose their bearings because they, they don't even have the tools for what to do when they get outside. And so Rabbi Sherlow argues quite properly that that's one of the things that happens in our book also. The idea is that faith is something that too has to develop, just like a marriage, and shouldn't just stop in this nice little happy, glowy, 18-year-old idealistic stage. It's something that really has to grow through one's life. Rabbi Sherlow says that on the realm of, in the realm of history, if we view Jewish history as an ongoing love story with God, it's much easier to relate to it than if you just read a history book. And he says that's what the Song of Songs is trying to do. It's trying to inspire us to feel that we're part of something as opposed to we're reading about the story. So that's one aspect of the national saga. He says with regard to the regard to the personal saga, which is really what he spends a lot more time on, he says that the most important thing that the Song of Songs tries to teach us from a metaphorical standpoint is that the best outlet of spirituality is God's voice, which is the voice of the Torah. He says that it's very easy to work from within, and that's what the woman does for mo- and the man does also for most of the book. But one pitfall of modern spirituality is casting God in our own image rather than trying to relate to God on God's terms. 
Hard to do. But that's what the Torah, that's what the Torah demands. The Torah says, here's God's voice outside of us, and now we have to interact with that. That is a great big deal, which until the modern period was what we did. We didn't even think about it. I don't think that every Jew was so observant all the time. I don't want to overglorify the past. But everybody at least understood the rules. Now here's the Torah, and then you either are more faithful or less faithful to it. And the rabbis were all saying we should all be all faithful all the time. And that's the way that it went. right? Whereas in the modern era, that isn't even a value. Right? Modern value would say your spirituality should come from within. That's more authentic. So Rabbi Sherlock says that the language of love is actually the best language we have to, to relate to that. In other words, that Rabbi Akiva's view was that if you know how to love your neighbor as you love yourself, at least on some level, then you could start to approach God. As opposed to the other way around. You think that if you love God, then you'll love people more. Rabbi Akiva's view was you have to be a master of human love, and then you could understand divine love. And there's this great midrash. Let me just read this great midrash, and we'll get to you, Shari. Source, let, me, let me just read source 10. The very last source over here, which is a very daring statement. And if I gave you the whole paragraph, it would be even more daring. Bless the sages. They come up with these remarkable statements that if they didn't say them, I wouldn't even dream of thinking this kind of stuff. But then they show up and they say it, and it's like, wow, that is awesome. Now I could present it. It's, it's really very helpful. So source 10, Rabbi Yosei said, Imagine a big basket full of produce without any handle, so that it could not be lifted. Until a genius came along and invented bag handles, all right? Until one clever man came and made handles to it, and then it began to be carried by the handles. So until Shalomo arose, no one could properly understand the words of Torah, but when Shlomo arose, all began to comprehend the Torah. This is an amazing thing to say. What the Midrash initially says, if you just take it at its face value, is until King Solomon came, nobody understood the Torah. Now, you might ask, um, what? What about like Joshua, for example? I'll bet you he understood it just fine. Prophet Samuel, I'm sure he was an A student in his Torah classes. King David, you, you, there's an all-star roster prior to King Solomon. What do you mean nobody understood it? And Solomon shows up and poof, everybody understood it because he invented handles to this big bag of fruit. The other example that's used in the longer passage is the guy who invented the exit sign. Right? It's like, you know, imagine a palace with all these terrible, you know, and uh, I, would be, I would be lost even with the exit sign, but we'll, stay, we'll talk, save that for another occasion. But the fact is that if you imagine you're inside of a building with a maze and everybody's getting lost and some genius shows up and invents the exit sign. It's an, it's an analogy that... Exit sign. Oh, exit. Like that, that thing is right over there. See, that's how I know how to get out of this room. I can go there or I can go there, and I'm not going to go there. Right? It's very simple. That's a beautiful verse that they chose. But in the meantime, the nimshal, the explanation of the analogy, is that until, you know, the Torah was a big maze, and King Solomon invented the exit sign. The Torah was too heavy for anybody to lift until King Solomon invented handles. Now, the question is, what in the world does that mean? So I'll tell you what I think it means. And it's based on the fact that this is relevant both to the Song of Songs and also to Kohelet, which is coming up in just a few weeks. They both are, this Midrash is addressing a very basic religious reality. Our whole religion is prophecy. God spoke to us. The whole Torah is that. The whole books of the prophets are all about that. Revelation is not a part of our religion. It's what makes our relationship with God possible. Without that, you take it away, we're good, we're done. That's the end of Judaism as we know it, right? 
Well, the problem then is, though, okay, so you have God's booming voice beckoning to all of us for all eternity. And how about for those of us who are not prophets? We're told that the whole religious system that we have is predicated on prophecy. Speaking of prophecy, I mean, you need music in order to prophesy. The timing is good. Please don't worry. Let me, just, let me just wind this thought down and then we'll go for it with the, with the Q&A. King Solomon wrote the Song of Songs. Like, imagine this. God says, love me. We have a commandment to love God. We say it in the Shema. Well, how? How? And, okay, yeah, Moshe did, all these great prophets did. But let's say you're a regular person and you want to love God in your day-to-day life. How do you relate to that? If God speaks to you, you love God. Okay, great. But let's say God doesn't speak to you. Answer... King Solomon says, imagine your love for another person. That you can imagine. Well, if you can imagine that, try to project that onto your love of God and you have a chance. King Solomon is trying to guide us to how we non-prophets relate to Revelation and how we relate ultimately to God. And Kohelet is the same thing. Kohelet, which we'll talk about in a few weeks, is a purely human book doesn't claim revelation. He just says, look, open up your eyes. You'll see the same stuff that I see. And indeed, you will. And he struggles because here's revealed truth saying A, B, and C. And here are my eyes telling me X, Y, and Z. And they're different. And that's why I'm so fed up with life. Right? So we'll talk about that more. But the premise is the same. Without that book, how are we supposed to relate to God in the Torah and Revelation? If That's just not part of our direct experience. King Solomon saw that. King Solomon is the one who said, it's good to be able to explain what the prophets say, but I need to write some books that people could read so that they can relate to prophecy. Great move. And so nobody until King Solomon understood the Torah, meaning if you're a prophet, of course you understand the Torah, because you understand what revelation is. But if you're not, you need somebody to come along and explain it from a human perspective. Okay, Megan? Oh, yeah, I just, um, you know, I don't believe that we're not all prophets. Meaning in a double negative sense, right? Okay, good. Okay, good. I just think we can all access that voice of God and have that personal relationship and understanding and hearing directly. That's what I believe. Very cool. Good. Well, I hope you're right. Okay, good. Yeah, when you were talking about the difference between prior generations and the current generations, you said the prior generations, uh, I don't like to present this in how you spoke, but that it was... uh, a matter of faith. I would say, yes, I think faith was important to the degree that nobody watched over anyone else as to how they lived. It was not a question of the practice, but again, I hesitate to use that word, but it's still, there wasn't the over-concern about practice. I think now what has come into being is not so much a matter of faith, it's questioning practice continues. I mean, the, uh, when you work out, it's like, oh, you're not that has nothing to do with it. Yeah, but, so you're, you're hitting on a whole bunch of sociology of religion issues, which are very, which are very, very important. I was focusing on something a little different. Well, I'm trying to get to what you were saying, and um, maybe what was going on. I, I can't express it. I'm okay. sorry, but I just think it, it's a little more. It's it's more than that. Maybe that's why supposedly there could be an acceptance of more of a range of practices. 
Supposedly but I'm still, but I'm not even, fine, all good, it's a, it's, that's a longer conversation. All I'm trying to say is that in the modern period highlights authenticity from within. The idea of an external commanding voice threatens that, whereas Judaism is about that external commanding voice. God's voice is speaking from without, telling us what to do. So for us, that's what authenticity is, but in the modern mind, it's not, and, that, and that's the challenge that modern people face in religious experience. They face other challenges too. I was just focusing on that one. That all being said, what what Rabbi Sherlow's main argument is, I I said it over the course, I will just wrap up with this, is that the Song of Songs, from its position in the Bible, has something to say to the modern generation that no other book does. Because again, its whole argument is that our best way of understanding religious encounter is by understanding human love. And the complexities of it, the fact that it requires a dynamic energy that propels one from this nice little bubble at the beginning into something that's mature and adult, that grows throughout a lifetime. It comes with many struggles along the way. And true love is one that is able to weather the struggles. Right? In other words, that's one of the key things that happens in our book. It's not without challenges. You know, they're missing each other, they're constantly they're constantly going after one another. But the fact is, the end of the book, they're just as in love, if not more so, than they were in chapter one, and that's exactly because of this pursuit. So that's that's a summary of Rabbi Sherlow's book, and I think that that's still the best book I've written read on the Song of Songs. So I wanted to share that with you. Next week we move on to one of my all-time favorite, you know, like from the Alice in Wonderland department. So Rabbi Sherlow's book was always telling me, you know, read me. So the Book of Ruth is one of these books that just sits on my shelf and says, teach me. It's such an amazing, amazing, amazing book, and I look forward to doing that with you in the following week. One scheduling thing, which obviously we will announce...